Hey everyone, you're listening to the 107 podcast where we get together every fortnight and sometimes more often to talk about technology, business and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. Well, we've hit 50 episodes. When we started this podcast in April of 2017, we did so by limiting it to only five minutes a time and by calling it an audio cast. And we did that because we wanted to experiment with some marketing that we really weren't familiar with and that we hadn't tried before. And I, of course, thought the best way to do this is to try something short and sweet that's a quick blast of audio, because who has time to listen to more than that? Well, that didn't last terribly long before we realized that five minutes simply wasn't enough time to tell a story or to get into the meat of an idea. I guess that's obvious now, in retrospect, of course. So I'm glad that this podcast has evolved into what it is today, a hopefully interesting discussion with people that are somehow involved in technology or in business. And what better way to celebrate a milestone like 50 episodes for a Drupal company's podcast than by talking to the founder of Drupal himself? Dries Buttert has a PhD in computer science and engineering and founded the Drupal project while at university. He's an open source software developer, a startup founder, and currently serves as a technology executive all in addition to being the benevolent dictator for life of the Drupal project. He's a father, a traveler, and a hobbyist photographer. He's won numerous awards like Entrepreneur of the Year and Fastest Growing Tech Company for Acquia. I'm honored to welcome to the 107 podcast, Dr. Dries Buttert, the creator of Drupal. Welcome, Dries. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me, and um, congratulations with uh, 50 episodes. That's uh, an exciting milestone. Yes, it is. Thank you. Thank you for the congratulations. I, you know, 10 years ago, I didn't think we'd we'd be here doing a podcast for a Drupal company, and uh, 11 years ago, I didn't even consider that I was starting a company that was based on <laughs> Drupal. Well, neither did I 18 years ago. <laughs> Makes two of us. <laughs> right. Well, congratulations, I guess, for starting Drupal. Do you know when the anniversary of that is? Starting Drupal, it's a little bit blurry, but I, I, do, I do know that we released, or that I released because I was alone at the time, Drupal 1.0.0 was on January 15th of... Um, I think it was 2001. So it's almost 18 years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is almost 18 years ago. But that was the first release. So it was the first were, release, yeah. You were likely working on that even before that from yeah. 2000. So that's, that's, right. that's a long time. Well, congratulations on that. That's coming up uh, very soon here. It is, yeah. <laughs> so Dries is a contraction of the name Andres, which is Andrew in English. Is Andres actually your given name? No. Or is it Dries? It's Dries, yeah, which is effectively, as they said, Drew um, in English. I don't know if people know that, but yeah. Dries is my given name. Uh, I don't have any middle names, um, so it's just, you know, Dries Batart. <laughs> Dries that, Batart. That's it, yeah. That's it. That's great. I, I don't have a middle name either, so um, I just recently had a shirt monogrammed, and it says IS on it, is. <laughs> <laughs> so you, I guess, would be database, right? That's right, yeah. 
<laughs> so you were you were born in Antwerp in Belgium in the late seventies. Do you have a favorite thing you remember doing as a child? I'm not sure I have a one favorite thing, but um, I did a lot. Of, I had a lot of different interests. Like when I was young, I, I loved Legos. When I was older, I really got into building remote-controlled airplanes. Actually, for some time, and then I got into writing software when I was about 10 or 11 years old. Um, and then in, um, later in high school, and um, I, I loved playing tennis. So I think I almost played tennis every day in the summer. So, you know, there's sort of been ebbs and flows in my interest. And I think that's still true today. I have a wide variety of different interests. I can identify with all of those. Um, are you still playing tennis? I am. You live in Boston, right? I do live in Boston now, and I, I still try to play tennis. I'm uh, probably playing two or three times a month. Um, if I could, I would play multiple times a week. <laughs> but between a lot of travel, I'm on the road quite a bit. Um, it's kind of hard when you... I mean, tennis is not a very portable sport <laughs> because you need to bring gear and you need somebody to play with and you often need to be a member of a club too. Um, so it's not something I can do when I travel. So I don't get to play as much as I'd like to, but I still try to, uh, as I said, play two or three times a month. Do you know how you're rated? Are you a 4.0 player or a 5 or a 3.5? I'm, I'm a decent player, but um, again, because of the travel, I can't really play competitively. And so I have a, I have a, a tennis coach um, that I play with and that works well for me because I only play three times a week and uh, three times a month and it can really kind of give me a, a good workout <laughs> every time I yeah. play. So it's for me, it's more about the workout and I love the, the game of tennis too. But um, so yeah, I don't know my rating. I ask because I absolutely love playing tennis as well, but I can't stand the competitive games and playing sets of tennis. So <laughs> I do it as a workout as well. And they usually have uh, groups of players that are similarly rated. And, uh, and that's, so that's why I was curious. You're a tall guy, so you must love to serve and volley. That's right. Um, pretty good surf. <laughs> so you mentioned you loved Legos and um, remote control planes. Do you remember your first computing experience as a kid? Yeah. My dad had a Commodore 64. Oh. And one um, you know, evening or day, he, he bought me a couple of computer books. And these were computer books for uh, kids. So programming for kids. And they had little code snippets which you had to enter um you know sort of in the computer and then they would execute and, and be a game and one of the games was like snail race or something and you had to basically pick a number between one and five and randomly they would move like a character across the screen and so they would randomly pick a character and that one would move up a position and then but if the character reached the other end of the screen, that one would win. You know, so it, it was you know little st stuff like that. It could, was probably like 20 lines of code. Um, but I remember as a kid entering 20 lines of code of basic code, and uh, that was that was a lot of fun. And you know, um, you start by literally copy pasting these things, so to speak, and then over time you you dabbled around a little bit and uh, started to try some th things on your own. And then I remember in 
I'm going to say it was 94 or something. Um, so my, my dad is a doctor. And at the time, um, you know, a lot of patient information and stuff was managed on paper. And he came to me and said, how do you feel about spending some of your summer vacation trying to uh, digitize some of this, you know, paperwork? And, and, and built me a database effectively, effectively for his patients. And he, I said, yes, he gave me some, some other computer books using DBase as a database and using, I think it was Clipper as a programming language. And I remember spending my entire summer building this patient management system uh, for him. And um, it was hard for me because, one, I didn't have any training in computer programming. And... English wasn't something that I was very good at, mm. you know, was was not even my, my second language. And so I remember sitting there with a dictionary trying to translate this, the manual effectively of the Clipper programming language and trying to make sense of it all. And I remember like reading things like Array and I had no idea what Arrays were. And so I had to like, <laughs> you know, I spent my whole summer trying to figure it out. And, um, but I, I got it to work. Uh, which was a major milestone for me, and I would say probably what got me hooked on uh, computer science. And did your dad's practice use the software then? And um, if, did it evolve? What what happened to that? He used some of it, and then eventually bought something <laughs> off the shelf. So I guess it wasn't a huge success from that point of view, in that like it literally transformed his business but uh, he used some of it for a while the, the part that he used was like a a graphing tool like he would measure um he's, he's a gynecologist and an oncologist so he would measure basically you know the baby in the belly <laughs> and he would enter the measurements um in the software and then the software would plot it on a graph and this was something that oh. he would have to do manually he had these sheets of paper and then he would plot Hey everyone, you're listening to the 107 podcast where we get together every fortnight and sometimes more often to talk about technology, business and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. Well, we've hit 50 episodes. When we started this podcast in April of 2017, we did so by limiting it to only 5 minutes a time and by calling it an audio cast. And we did that because we wanted to experiment with some marketing that we really weren't familiar with and that we hadn't tried before. And I, of course, thought the best way to do this is to try something short and sweet that's a quick blast of audio, because who has time to listen to more than that? Well, that didn't last terribly long before we realized that five minutes simply wasn't enough time to tell a story or to get into the meat of an idea. I guess that's obvious now, in retrospect, of course. So I'm glad that this podcast has evolved into what it is today, a hopefully interesting discussion with people that are somehow involved in technology or in business. And what better way to celebrate a milestone like 50 episodes for a Drupal company's podcast than by talking to the founder of Drupal himself? Dries Buttert has a PhD in computer science and engineering and founded the Drupal project while at university. He's an open source software developer, a startup founder, 
and currently serves as a technology executive, all in addition to being the benevolent dictator for life of the Drupal project. He's a father, a traveler, and a hobbyist photographer. He's won numerous awards like Entrepreneur of the Year and Fastest Growing Tech Company for Acquia. I'm honored to welcome to the 107 podcast, Dr. Dries Buttert, the creator of Drupal. Welcome, Dries. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me, and um, congratulations with uh, 50 episodes. It's uh, an exciting milestone. Yes, it is. Thank you. Thank you for the congratulations. I, you know, 10 years ago, I didn't think we'd, we'd be here doing a podcast for a Drupal company. And uh, 11 years ago, I didn't even consider that I was starting a company that was based on Drupal. <laughs> well, neither did I 18 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Makes two of us. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, congratulations, I guess, for starting Drupal. Do you know when the anniversary of that is? Starting Drupal... It's a little bit blurry, but I, I do, I do know that we released, or that I released, because I was alone at the time. Drupal 1.0.0 was on January 15th of, um, I think it was 2001. So, it's almost 18 years ago. Oh, wow! Yeah, that is almost 18 years ago. But that was the first release. So, it was the first you were, release. Yeah, you were likely working on that even before that from yeah. 2000 so that's that's, right. that's a long time well congratulations on that that's coming up uh, very soon here it is yeah <laughs> so dries is a contraction of the name andries which is andrew in english is andries actually your given name no, or is it dries it's dries yeah which is effectively as he said drew um in english i don't know if people know that but yeah dries is my given name uh, I don't have any middle names, um, so it's just, you know, Dries Buttert. <laughs> Dries that, Buttert. That's it, yeah. That's it, that's great. I, I don't have a middle name either, so um, I just recently had a shirt monogrammed, and it says IS on it, is. <laughs> <laughs> so you, I guess, would be database, right? That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you were you were born in Antwerp in Belgium in the late 70s. Do you have a favorite thing you remember doing as a child? I'm not sure I have one favorite thing, but um, I did a lot. Of, I had a lot of different interests. Like when I was young, I, I loved Legos. When I was older, I really got into building remote-controlled airplanes. Actually, for some time, and then I got into writing software when I was about ten or eleven years old. Um, and then in um, later in high school, and um, I, I loved playing tennis. So I think I almost played tennis every day in the summer so you know there's sort of been ebbs and flows in my interest and i think that's still true today i have a wide variety of different interests i can identify with all of those um are you still playing tennis i am you live in boston right i do live in boston now and i i still try to play tennis i'm uh, probably playing two or three times a month um if i could i would play multiple times a week (laughs) But between a lot of travel, I'm on the road quite a bit. Um, it's kind of hard when you... I mean, tennis is not a very portable sport <laughs> because you need to bring gear and you need somebody to play with and you often need to be a member of a club too. Um, so it's not something I can do when I travel. So I don't get to play as much as I'd like to, but I still try to, uh, as I said, play two or three times a month. 
Do you know how you're rated? Are you a 4.0 player or a 5 or a 3.5? I'm, I'm a decent player. But um, again, because of the travel, I can't really play competitively. And so I have a, I have a, a tennis coach um, that I play with. And that works well for me because I only play three times a week and uh, three times a month. And he can really kind of give me a, a good workout <laughs> every time I yeah. play. So it's for me, it's more about the workout and I love the the game of tennis too but um so yeah I don't know my rating I ask because I absolutely love playing tennis as well but I can't stand the competitive games and playing sets of tennis so <laughs> I do it as a workout as well and they usually have uh groups of players that are similarly rated and uh and that's so that's why I was curious you're a tall guy so you must love to serve and volley that's right um pretty good surf <laughs> so you mentioned you loved legos and um remote control planes do you remember your first computing experience as a kid yeah my dad had a commodore 64 oh. and one um you know evening or day he he bought me a couple of computer books and these were computer books for uh kids so programming for kids and they had little code snippets which you had to enter um you know, sort of in the computer, and then they would execute and, and be a game. And one of the games was like Snail Race or something, and you had to basically pick a number between one and five. And randomly, they would move like a character across the screen. And so they would randomly pick a character, and that one would move up a position. And then but if the character reached the other end of the screen, that one would win. You know, so it was, you know, little stuff like that. It was probably like 20 lines of code. Um, but I remember as a kid entering 20 lines of code, of basic code, and uh, that, was, that was a lot of fun. And, you know, um, you start by literally copy-pasting these things, so to speak, and then over time you, you dabbled around a little bit and uh, started to try some things on your own. And then I remember in, I'm going to say it was 94, or something. Um, so my my dad is a doctor, and at the time, um, you know, a lot of patient information and stuff was managed on paper. And he came to me and said, "How do you feel about spending some of your summer vacation trying to uh, digitize some of this, you know, paperwork, and 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 build me a database effectively effectively for his patients?" And he, I said yes. He gave me some some other computer books using dbase as a database and using i think it was clipper as a programming language and i remember spending my entire summer building this patient management system uh for him and um, it was hard for me because one i didn't have any training in computer programming and english wasn't something that i was very good at mm. you know was was not even my my second language, and so I remember sitting there with a dictionary trying to translate this the manual effectively of the Clipper programming language and trying to make sense of it all. And I remember like reading things like array, and I had no idea what arrays were. And so I had to like <laughs> you know spend my whole summer trying to figure it out, and um, but I I got it to work, uh, which was a major milestone for me, and I would say probably what got me hooked on uh computer science 
And did your dad's practice use the software then? And um, if, does, did it evolve? What, what happened to that? He used some of it and then eventually bought something <laughs> off the shelf. So I guess it wasn't a huge success from that point of view in that like, it literally transformed his business. But uh, he used some of it for a while. The, the part that he used was like a, a graphing tool, like he would measure... Um, is is a gynecologist and an oncologist, so he would measure ba basically, you know, the baby in the belly, <laughs> and he would enter the measurements um, in the software, and then the software would plot it on a graph. And this was something that oh. he would have to do manually. He had these sheets of paper, and then he would plot the measurements on the graph, and then he could tell whether the baby was growing well or not, or you know. And so that was very manual and tedious. And so that part, he, he used the graphing uh, portion uh, that I built. And do you, do you think back to that um, copy-paste, as you described it, which is really reading code from a manual and typing it in right. to your program on that Commodore 64, do you consider that kind of the beginning of open source software? Because that, that was actually code that was published for anyone to use and to modify effectively. Yeah, that's a good point. I never thought about it. But yeah, it's a form of open source, I would say. I don't know if it came with a formal open source license. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and I don't know. There's a lot of power in, in books and uh, enabling people to learn through uh, sharing code. I mean, and even when I got into web development, um, you know, copy-paste was a powerful tool, right? You would, like, browse around websites, and uh, when you saw something that you liked, you could, um, you know, from within the browser, you could do view source, and you could learn about how that website was built, and you could, um, you know, reuse some of that code if you wanted to, or kind of use it as a starting point to, to write your own. So, it's still, a, I think... I think a lot of web development still happens that way. <laughs> Maybe not most of it, but, you know, at least some of it. And I think a lot of people who are learning are doing that. And, and, exactly. it's, and it's less uh, view source now than it is inspect element and, true. you know, using the wonderful tools that these browsers have now. So, it, that's you know, true. that's made it easier for us, I think. Yeah, it would be a shame if we lost that, I would say. Oh, I, would, I agree. I absolutely agree. So you were raised in Antwerp, um, and you got a master's degree in computer science from the university in Antwerp. And after you graduated from that degree, you worked on something called Wonka VM for a company called Acunia, which sounds an awful lot like Acquia. Yeah, that was my <laughs> first job, uh, my, my, I guess my first real job, so to speak, um, as, an, as a software engineer out of, out of college. And it was Java-centric, correct? It was Java-centric, um, so the company uh, was a telematics company, so we built um, hardware and software that would be installed in cars, and that would effectively provide navigation software or you know other kind of software capabilities. And I did a couple of things. I helped build a real-time operating system. Um, first from scratch, actually, and later we ported Linux to this hardware platform that we designed. And then once we got the operating system running, we decided to build our own uh, Java virtual machine uh, because the one that Sun had built wouldn't run on 
effectively like embedded software, right? Or on a on a little hardware platform. It, and so we had to build our own virtual machine, and I was part of the virtual machine uh, group. It was a small group. I think we were four or five people. <laughs> and so it was Java, but I was actually writing C code because the uh, operating system and the kernel and then also our Java virtual machine implementation were all written in C because we needed to have that raw speed because we had a you know, very lightweight embedded uh, hardware device effectively. Yeah. Uh, but we did make that virtual machine open source. How did your philosophy and your ideas about uh, open source influence that um, license that you used to... Uh, release Wonka VM on? Um, because f according to my research, you basically started Drupal right around the time that you kind of ended your work at uh, the University of Antwerp for your master's degree. So yeah. there must have been some influence there or some perspective that influenced the Wonka VM. Um, yeah, so I was an engineer on the, on the, on the Wonka VM team. I, I wasn't the I wasn't a team lead a little bit. Like I started contributing to to the Linux kernel, and I helped um, a little bit with the wireless network drivers of Linux, and ended up being a maintainer of the documentation and stuff like that. And so I got really into Linux. And so then I started the Drupal project, and because I kind of came from the Linux world, um, I just it was very natural for me to make Drupal open source and. In fact, I literally copied, another example of copy-paste, I guess, literally copied the GPL license file from my Linux kernel tree into my website, created a zip file or a tarball, um, and uploaded that and, and called it Drupal. Um, oh, wow. So that's why Drupal is GPL, because you know I was working uh, using Linux and contributing to Linux a little bit. Um, and so then I went to work for this startup, um, building or helping to build a Wonka VM. And you know there was kind of inbound interest, I would say, in in other from other companies to also use an embedded uh, Java virtual machine. And so you know open source at the time was sort of a hot topic, but also very premature in in, in other ways. But uh, for me, mm -hmm. it was a natural thing to help. Uh, make uh, the Wonka VM open source. Um, I forgot what license we picked for it, but um, yeah, that became open source. I, I think I read about this yesterday when I was prepping. I think it was a uh, a license that was pseudo, pseudo BSD. Yeah. No, I'm confusing that with the release of the open JDK implementation that Sun had. Sorry, sorry about that. Yeah, no worries. Um, I didn't. I don't recall picking the license. I, I think that was my the CTO of the company um, was in charge of that. But I was just excited to be part of another open source uh, team. And so, open source has been a constant in my professional career. You know, all the way from college till today. Do you think you still have any of your code that you wrote for the WLAN drivers and the WLAN project in the kernel? No, no, no. I don't. I don't know. I don't think so. Um, no, 
I, I haven't I haven't looked, but uh, I didn't write that much, uh, to be clear. Um, I was small contributions on the edges, and then I did end up being the official maintainer of the documentation for a while. Um, but, yeah. Follow-up question, uh, just since we're on the topic of old code. Is any of your code still in Drupal 8 from the very first release, huh. or has that has that all disappeared? That's <laughs> a great question. I don't... Uh, probably all disappeared from the original release. Um, yeah, from the original. It would be interesting to see yeah. that. I would say a lot of the concepts have survived. Um, like the notes, yeah. well, and, and not all of them were in the initial release, but, um, you know, like we shipped Drupal 1 with RSS feeds, which at the time was, um, you know, groundbreaking, so to speak. Um, and these things are still in Drupal, and then the hook system and the node system, and there's a lot of things that have survived the many major Drupal releases, but I don't know if any code has survived the you know, from the original uh, Drupal 1. That'd be interesting yeah. to know. It would be, yeah. So, yeah. So you, you spend a few years... Um, Working as a Java engineer, essentially, right? And you decide to go and get your PhD, mm -hmm. and you spend your you spend about five years doing that. And your work um, for your doctorate is focused on Java, and you're working with the inventor of Java. Um, and at the same time, you're working on Drupal, and basically, Drupal is in its infancy, and then maybe in its, you know, angry teen years as well. How how do you juggle doing these two things that um, I'm sure are taking up so much of your time? Yeah, I mean, I think I've always worked um, hard. <laughs> but uh, yeah, during the day, I would work on my PhD, um, and that was pretty intense. And then at night and on the weekends, I would work on Drupal. So I would use every spare minute of my time, really, to <laughs> to work on Drupal. I mean, it was exciting for me, and it still is exciting. I was mm. very passionate, and I still am very passionate about Drupal. It was definitely an interesting time because as I was doing my PhD, Drupal also started to slowly take off. Um, you know, we had multiple tipping points, like Howard Dean started using Drupal, and first Drupal companies were being started, and we decided to start organizing DrupalCon events, and all, all of that was... Um, you know, intense. I mean, I remember, you know, we would do DrupalCons and I needed to travel for them. But as a PhD student, I was being paid by the university of, um, or, or I guess by the government technically, but I was making like, I'm going to say $1,500 a month. In the context of Belgium at the time, wasn't a whole lot of money, <laughs> $1,500. Um, but like, we would do like, hey, let's do a Drupal a conference in San Francisco in Sunnyvale, and I'm like, sure, let, let's do that. But the ticket alone <laughs> um, was basically my entire, you know, salary for the month. Uh, or I remember people started telling me you should really get a trademark on the name Drupal. And so I researched. I went to a lawyer and I said, what does it take to get the the word Drupal trademarked? And um, I think they came back and said, like, you know, something like $10,000. And I'm like, whoa, I don't have $10,000. And so I decided to do it myself. And so I spent a couple nights or 
maybe a couple of weeks every night researching how you file a trademark application and how you file it in multiple countries too. Um, and so I still had to pay um, filing fees and I ended up paying $3,000 or euros or something just to get the trademarks. But again, $3,000 was two months of my salary. And so I remember by the time I finished my PhD, I had like 400 euros in my bank account. And uh, I'd, I'd <laughs> spent it all on Drupal, you know. And so not only did I spend all of my free time, I um, also spent a lot of my my savings, you know, savings that I got from Acuna, the, the startup, um, you know, that, that we talked about. Uh, so I was very passionate about that. Uh, it was a very busy period, you know. I was working, you know, easily 12-hour days and uh, also weekends. You mentioned Howard Dean as being maybe one of the tipping points um, for Drupal. When when did you realize that this thing that you made wasn't a pit project anymore? Mm-hmm. Like that it was affecting people's lives and that there you know that there were some legs to this thing. Yeah, I mean it um it happened kind of in 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 phases um to be honest, but um, I, I remember when I was doing my PhD, I'll give you one concrete example, but uh, MTV had decided to switch to Drupal. And uh, I remember their sites, you know, came down crashing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, I, you know, I took that very personal, you know. For me, it was very important that these organizations like MTV, which was a very big deal to me, especially at the time. I mean, it's hard to believe even, like, at the time, like, oh, MTV's using Drupal, like my, my little hobby project, <laughs> um, <laughs> that I would, you know, volunteer to spend time with them on the phone at night. And so I would come home from work, you know, from my PhD uh, research, and, uh, you know, I would spend my spare time free of charge uh, on the phone with MTV trying to troubleshoot their, you know, performance and scalability issues. That was important because I wanted them to be successful because I knew if they were successful, um, there would be incredible references for others, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's at, at times like that, it's when I realized like, wow, you know, this is for real. <laughs> These are real companies using Drupal in real real ways, and we need to make sure that that these kinds of organizations are, are going to, to succeed. And it's also really when you know, sort of the first seeds were planted for Acquia um, because I, I, I was I was convinced at the time that for Drupal to succeed, it needed to succeed with these large organizations that would be incredible brands and references for us. And so I also realized, like, look, this is not something I can do in my spare time at night. <laughs> like, there needs to be a company that helps these organizations uh, be successful. So, uh, but so you co you co-founded Aqua, yeah. correct? Yeah, and that was in about two thousand seven. Yeah, I think? that's right. Yeah, and how does that? Uh, when did you complete your PhD? Was that about the same time? Uh, technically, I completed my PhD in two thousand and eight. So I started Aqua while I was still finishing my PhD. So I'd, I'd done all of the research uh, at the time or almost all of the research, but I was I still needed to write my dissertation, uh, you know, like your between quotes book <laughs> uh, that summarizes <laughs> the results of your research. And, you know, that, that was a very crazy time because, um, you know, between, you know, 
we were working on you know a major release of Drupal I was finishing my PhD which was a lot of work I also decided to co-found Acquia and uh, our oldest son was born at the time as well so Jeez. I was like juggling a lot of things <laughs> but yeah but I officially incorporated Acquia in the summer of 2007 so uh, about eight months before finishing my PhD, I would say. So almost, yeah, I guess almost. That's when we incorporated Acquia. So the idea must have been born several months before that. So I guess Acquia was kind of born um, about a year before finishing my PhD. That was around the same time that I started 10.7 and was deciding which CMS I was going to hitch my company to. And if I remember correctly, that's that was around the time that Drupal 4.7 was stable, mm -hmm. and I think 5 was going to be coming out very soon. I believe that's right. Yeah. That's what I can remember. Right. I, I, I know we haven't were, looked that up yet. I, I think you're right. Um, I think you're right, yes. So at what point did you decide you were going to call the United States your home? Because you started Acquia, but you you decided to make Boston your home just after that, right? I don't think you were here yet. Uh, right. So um, because I was still finishing my PhD and I had to be at the university. <laughs> and then, as I mentioned, my oldest son was born. Um, and so it wasn't a good time to move. But um, I decided to co-found Acquia in Boston for a couple of reasons. One, a person that I met... Uh, Jay Batson, as well as our first investor, you know, Michael Scott from, at the time, uh, Norbridge Venture Partners, at, uh, I think was their official name. They were, were both based in Boston. You know, the vision for Acquia at the time was to be to Drupal what Red Hat was to Linux. You know, we would be mm. the provide enterprise-grade support, SLA-based support, and a couple of, you know, products and services around that. And so, as we've established, uh, Drupal predated Acquia by seven years, right? So, Drupal already existed, and the original idea of the sort of being the Red Hat uh, for Drupal is a very support-intensive business model, a lot of human touch, if you will. And you kind of want to put the company close to the where one the largest customers are because you 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 need to interact with them, you need to be on the phone with them, all of these things. And so it makes it made a lot of sense for me um, to put the company in the U.S. broadly. And then because I met Jay and Michael, my co-founder and our first investor, given that they were based in Boston, um, that was a very you know, logical choice, obviously. And Boston is a great city because, you know, obviously there is um, a, a lot of venture capital there, a lot of access to money uh, for starting companies. It's the second largest technology city in the United States after San Francisco. There's also great access to talent with universities like MIT and Harvard. And so it wasn't too far from Belgium. It was only a six-hour time zone difference. And like about a six-hour flight, and so you know, Boston was a was a great place, and it allowed me to stay in Belgium um, for the time being while we were trying to get Acquia going. And I was a young 
dad, I guess, and finishing my PhD. And then I think I moved. Uh, I did a lot of sort of one week in Belgium, one week in Boston, one week in Belgium, kind of back and forth kind of travel. Um, and then eventually, a couple of years later, kind of moved permanently. And now you call Boston your home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's officially my home and it is. it feels like my home. I still spend a good amount of time in Europe, but uh, yeah, I love being in Boston. It's a great, it's a great place. I read somewhere, I think it might have been on your website, that you travel about a quarter of a million kilometers every year. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of travel. Yeah. It's a lot of travel, yeah. I don't know. I, yes, that's a lot of travel. It's like, what, eight times around the world or something a year? Something, yeah. something yeah. like that. So you must get a lot of miles and a lot of rewards on a credit card. You know, I get a lot of miles, but not a lot of rewards. Actually, <laughs> I think, I think people people overrate these programs, and they also romanticize what that amount of travel looks like. You know, it's a it, travel very. It's tough. It's very tough. Um, it's in and out. I don't get to sightsee. I travel economy class um and I, and I still do i also get a lot of energy from meeting drupal users and aquia customers and you know so it's tough but um for me also fun well you'll be visiting minneapolis in 2020 yeah. with the uh, drupalcon right. here so <laughs> i hope you get a chance to sightsee here you know, drupalcons i usually do because i'm usually there for a whole week so that allows me to explore a little bit more of the city. But, you know, sometimes my travel, like, I'll, you know, I'll fly to the West Coast, which is about a seven-hour flight. I'll be there for an afternoon and fly back, you know, that night, right? It's tough. Yeah. So it's, it's not tough. like... But, uh, yeah, DrupalCons are nice because it's a whole week and there's a lot of kind of social activities at night and it's fun. It is fun. It really is. So you're one of the 30 or so benevolent dictators for life. Um, uh, Linus Torvalds for Linux is one of them. Uh, Mark Shuttleworth for Ubuntu. DHH for Ruby on Rails. And you're effectively kind of the final say, mm -hmm. right, in any dispute or argument. You're basically the dad of the Drupal project. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> I so, guess, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so the, like, to me, it, it, it's almost incongruent, or it, it, at least it causes some sort of cognitive dissonance in my brain when there's a BDFL for a project that is effectively designed to be collaborative and transparent and open. And I've read some opinions online about why open source projects end up having this kind of dictatorship. And I, I don't like the word dictatorship. These are other people's words, but it's, it's kind of the descriptor. How do you see your responsibility for this beautiful thing you've created evolving? Yeah. Um, first of all, I don't love the term um, BDFL either. It's not something that I kind of... Yeah. It's a title that's been given to me. <laughs> not something that I kind of picked myself, just to be clear. Exactly. Um, of course. Yeah. Um, you know, I think my role has evolved a lot over time. I mean, in the early days, I would write 100% of the code, you know, and um, I would spend a lot of my time building uh, Drupal.org. I would help run the servers behind Drupal.org. I would organize um, 
the Drupal con events um, or help organize them like intensively. And over time, I've scaled more and more, right? Like uh, Drupal Association would be one example of that as a, a step in evolving my role, which you know put in place an entity, a nonprofit entity specifically that could take over the organization of uh, DrupalCon, which now is, I mean, it's a serious event. It, it, it costs a few million dollars to put on <laughs> and takes uh, a whole team of people to, to organize. Um, same thing with managing our website and the underlying hardware infrastructure. It's now being managed, um, you know, professionally by people at the Drupal Association and, and again, also with the help of people in the community, just like DrupalCon. Uh, but these are examples of how I've scaled my role. Obviously, on the technical side, you know, I went from being the sort of single core committer <laughs> to now having, you know, teams of core committers, you know, for each of the major releases, having committees and task force around um, different aspects uh, of the project, uh, like a technical uh, working group that defines coding standards. We have release managers and product managers and framework managers and you know all these kinds of roles to subsystem maintainers that are responsible for uh, different aspects of the uh, you know of, of the of, of Drupal core. Uh, and so that's these are all examples of me scaling uh, my role over time and we continue to make governance changes you know all the time. Uh, and to you know scale the project as needed. I think I think that's the right thing to do. You know, as as projects or organizations get bigger, you need to do you, you need to put the kind of uh, organizational structure in place. Um, you also need to scale the culture uh, of, of the project, and so try to help with that um, through my keynotes. Uh, actually, last year this time I. I helped write uh, Drupal's values and principles um, document. That's a way to help scale our culture. So, you know, it takes a lot of uh, effort and different people to to maintain and run the, the Drupal project today. So, It sure does. How do you spend uh, or do you spend time thinking about the kind of the ethical implications of the technology that you've created and that you've helped create. Um, what do you mean by that? Do you have an example? I guess anything can be used for good or bad things, right? right? And so there's some sort of ethical implications there. And this little project you created in, I would assume, a dorm room, but somewhere in a university somewhere when you released it, it's had a profound effect on the world. I mean, there's two, as, as you've written yourself, 2% of the world's websites use mm -hmm. Drupal. And I, I wonder about how you think about the, not just the positive, but the negative effects that the software has and, and how, like, how does that affect you? And yeah, um, it's, um, I mean, I, I think, I think Drupal is primarily used for good, right? There's um, tens of thousands right. of nonprofits using Drupal to, you know, accelerate accelerate their mission, whatever their mission is. There's a lot of governments using Drupal, which, you know, technically they're doing for good. 
Drupal has has done a lot of good things. Um, obviously, there's also you know less good sort of implementations of Drupal. I guess it's hard to control. Uh, but I take pride in that we have actually made a lot of people's lives better with Drupal. Um, and I, I believe we've that sort of drastically outweighs uh, some of the, the negative impact um, that Drupal has had as well. Like I remember at, at one point, this is now um, probably eight years ago, you know, two FBI agents <laughs> showed up at Acquia you know, in black suits and like, hey, where's Dries? Um, and he needed to talk to me. Dries is not here right now. Can you leave a exactly, message, please? That's exactly what they told them because <laughs> I wasn't there. Um, but they immediately oh, called me and said, hey, the, like two FBI agents, uh, you know, showed up. And uh, I'm like, whoa, what did I do? And um, they left their phone number. I called them and, you know, there was a site and I don't know which site or what, but obviously there was something, you know, illegal on the site. Uh, and um, they thought it was my site. <laughs> and they looked at yeah. the site, they saw it was Drupal, they found my name, and they thought I was the site owner and developer of the site. Um, but obviously, I had nothing to do with the site. And um, to, to this day, I, I don't know which site it was. But uh, I remember educating the FBI about open source <laughs> and and how it all works and why it's not my site. Uh, but that that would be that would have been an example of a site, obviously that probably did not have a good impact on the world, and it's troubling, obviously. But at the same time, I'm not sure what to do about that. You know, you know, I, I focus on how we make things better, and to me that's a huge. Um, you know, motivator. The fact that Drupal is now used by one out of 30 sites in the world, and if you look at some of the larger sites, uh, I think that number gets closer to one out of 10. And so if you think about it, what that means is that everyone uses Drupal, right? As a visitor of the web, as a user of the web, you're going to hit a Drupal site. <laughs> um, it's hard to not hit a Drupal site if everybody visits, you know, at least 30 websites, I imagine. And so statistically, you're gonna hit a Drupal site. And so what's, what's encouraging and powerful to me is that when you make a change to Drupal, when you make it a little bit better, you know, let's say you make it a little bit more accessible, all of a sudden that touches everybody, everybody that uses the web, you know? And so people sometimes complain that it's hard to make changes in Drupal because we're so big and we have, you know, governance, a lot of governance around it. Um, but at the same time, if, if you, you know, your, if your contribution makes it in, there's a good chance that it touches billions of people, which that's incredibly encouraging and, and rewarding to me. I, I can't even imagine how rewarding it is to you. I, I can identify with that. Um, you know, I, I'm sure it's a small portion of how you feel um, and the clients that we help with, with you know, being a Drupal-focused agency and just using Drupal, it, it does feel good to be able to touch people and to improve things as new versions come out. And I, I, I have to thank you again for creating Drupal. Like, this company <laughs> wouldn't exist. I wouldn't be doing what I love. And, and it's, it's, so, it's awesome. I think I have two questions, and, and we'll be able to wrap it up. I, I love your Dries notes. 
I love them because you're always um, talking about what's coming next and um, what you think we should be focusing on in the future, not just from a technical point of view, but um, from the people that make and use Drupal as well. And I'm curious to know, besides the new features and the attention to the user experience, what are your hopes and dreams for the Drupal community itself over the next few years? And, And how do you see yourself facilitating that? Yeah, well, it's a big question. I don't know if I have a, have a lot of thoughts on how to answer this question. I'm, I'm not sure if um, I have a crisp answer. But first of all, I'm very passionate about making Drupal easier to use for the day-to-day users of Drupal, right? Like the, the content creators and the marketers and the typically less technical people. Um, I think it's really important Um that was less important when I started Drupal, but today that's very important. And so I'm very passionate about that because I think it's incredibly empowering uh, for these people. And so we're doing a great job at that, actually. We're, um, you know, we're working on Layout Builder, we're working on media, we're working on a whole bunch of things that will kind of make Drupal easier to use for non-developers. And so that's super exciting. And... Um, I'm very happy that the community has been rallying around that right now. I feel like I've been talking about this in my Dries notes <laughs> actually for many years um, and that that wasn't always well received, at least in the early days. It wasn't universally well received, that that is something that we needed to do. And so I think that cultural change has been a little bit slower than I would have liked to, but um, I feel like we're finally there. And so that's that's pretty exciting uh, to me. Uh, and that's exactly what needs to happen. And if you combine that with some of the innovation that we're working on around uh, headless Drupal or decoupled Drupal, uh, you know, the API first initiative, where we're focused on the REST API and the JSON API, that really kind of propels Drupal into new opportunities where we're kind of moving beyond mm. just supporting um, you know traditional websites but where we can push content into you know mobile applications and digital kiosks and even drive uh, voice assistants like Siri or Alexa push content into augmented uh, reality applications and and all the kind of stuff and I think that's incredibly exciting to me as well and I'm, I'm very excited that the Drupal community is also embracing that. I guess the last part of your question was like, how, how do I see myself uh, facil- facilitating that? Is that right? Yes. And, you know, for me, I, I try to think about, I, I like to optimize what I do for impact. And so, like, I love programming, uh, but I don't do a lot of programming in Drupal because I don't feel it maximizes what I can do for the project. And so often, you know, what I do do is I, I try to help set sort of the the broad vision of, of where I think we should go and, and try to evangelize that and uh, try to organize groups of people around the different pieces that make up that vision. So it's like I, I try to plant the flag. <laughs> and in my last Dries note, I, I actually showed an image with a flag. <laughs> And then all of the different initiatives that help us 
get from A to B? You know, how do we actually get to the flag? And so we need to do all these different things. And so I like to kind of track those things and make sure that people are able to move these initiatives forward so, so that the combined progress across all of the initiatives helps uh, Drupal succeed. I also try and spend time unblocking people or empowering people to do things. Um, try to look after the sustainability of the project. Uh, I spend a good, of, a good amount of my time working with the Drupal Association to make sure that uh, the Drupal Association is, is um, you know, well-funded, that the DrupalCon events happen because I believe in bringing, uh, you know, bringing people together to, to build, you know, in-person relationships, uh, not just, you know, relationships on Slack or issue queues. And so, I don't know, I do a lot of different things, I guess, you know, the things that I, that I feel will help move Drupal forward. A lot of these things are now a little bit more in the background than they used to be, uh, funny enough or less in the issue queues and the developer spheres, but more around, um, you know, governance, strategy work, that kind of stuff. Uh, Long-winded long answer. <laughs> no, a very important answer. I, I appreciate everything you do for the community and for starting the project and for continuing to shepherd the organization and the, the direction of the project. Well, I do my best, um, but it's truly the work of hundreds if not thousands of people you know a lot of people do so much for drupal and in many ways my contribution now is is you know just like anyone else's contribution it's you know i contribute a small piece of the bigger collective effort Dries, thank you so very much for spending your time with me today i really appreciate it would you consider coming back in the future at some point i will Maybe on the 100th episode. Let's do it. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, well, thanks for the opportunity, and uh, congratulations again. Thank you very much. Dries can be found online at dree.es. That's Dries, with a dot between the I and the E, where he publishes on a regular basis and syndicates it elsewhere. He is Dries on Twitter and on Drupal.org, where he is also user number one. We'll have that in the transcript online with links. You've been listening to the 107 podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.